So what's the big problem with wealth creation? How do people like us, who didn't inherit a boatload of money, who are investing and building wealth from our own blood, sweat and tears, how do we invest in a way that gives us remarkable results and become financially free before retirement age? I don't know about you, but I am sick of hearing from wealth gurus and experts who don't walk their own talk and prescribe strategies that are a one-size-fits-all approach. For self-made people like you and me, I'm here to tell you that you don't need to be superhuman or already wealthy to reach financial freedom earlier than 65. This is the Alternative Investing Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. And for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, my name is Selena Kulkarni and I help business owners that want to learn about and build wealth using non-traditional investments so that they can retire in two to five years time. Now in today's episode, I want to share something that I don't normally cover in this podcast, but some of you have reached out and said that this could be a, a really great way for you to understand how alternative investments work and how amazing the result can be in a very short space of time. So I want to actually talk to you about a real world client of mine. I've been working with this couple for just under two years now, and I want to kind of go through how we went from taking them from a pretty shaky financial situation to an extraordinary investing result in the time that we've worked together without having to take on any hair-raising risks and preserving the vast majority of investments that they already had in play. What's extraordinary about this couple, and I'm going to call them um, George and Mildred, <laughs> for those of you who like uh, old British sitcoms, but um, guys, George and Mildred were average business owners running a fairly, I would say, modest business. They were generating enough to sustain their lifestyle in terms of profits. So in other words, they were paying themselves a salary, a little bit of uh, extra money in terms of dividends, but they were really having to hustle pretty hard to kind of set aside extra money to put into any form of investing. In spite of that, they had done a pretty good job and their financial situation when I met them was they had about three quarters of a million dollars in a share portfolio. They had one commercial property, which wasn't giving them a huge amount of cash flow, but was cash flow positive. They had another portfolio of shares outside of their super and they were in a situation where the work that um, George was doing was incredibly physically taxing. He came from the property and construction industry and he was in a situation where the runway to retirement was clearly starting to get very short. They'd been working for a long time with a financial planner and had effectively put themselves in a situation where they'd hustled and redlined and optimized as much as they could, but there wasn't going to be any strategy for them on the horizon that was going to give them the sort of income that they needed in retirement. The best cash flow income stream that they were able to achieve was going to be somewhere around the 3 to 4%. And that just wasn't going to cut it in terms of, you know, maintaining and giving them the sort of lifestyle they wanted. And, and you know, frankly, like a lot of people that work very hard in business, you know, you don't do all that extra work to find yourself in a situation where, you know, you can't maintain your lifestyle. But unfortunately, that seems to be the norm. So these guys had fortunately put themselves in a situation where they had their house completely paid off and mortgage free. They had a couple of uh, investment loans, which 
related to bodgy investments that they had done in the past. And unfortunately, they were now still just paying down those those loans. And I'm going to say those loans were maybe um, two, three hundred thousand when we started. So, you know, looking at their situation holistically, what we were able to do is look at each aspect uh, in terms of what was their debt position, what was their asset position, what was performing, what wasn't performing, where were the opportunities to optimise, how was cash being managed in the business, was there any way to kind of maybe structure for better flow of money, what sort of stewardship or discipline could be implemented to just squeeze a tiny bit more out of what they were already doing. And for example, they were focused very heavily on trying to eliminate that investment debt, which totally makes sense. And that was certainly one scenario that they could continue with. But what we decided to do was start to play with some other um, scenarios. And, you know, my view of what you should be doing as a, as a mentor in the wealth space is kind of talking to people about what their options are and not being prescriptive. So meaning you should do X, Y, and then Z. I think a much more effective way of supporting people is helping them understand the implications of different decisions. Because frankly, if someone could say to you that, look, there's this asset or investment here, you know, if you buy it, the implications in five to 10 years are this, If you don't buy it, the implications in five to 10 years is this. And same with every other thing. Like I know, for example, that the game plan is accumulate a couple of investment properties and then just focus wholeheartedly on debt reduction. And that's the strategy that is probably relatively conservative. And for many people, yes, it gets you to the situation where let's say, for example, you have one or two investment properties unencumbered, meaning no debt. But when the average investment income stream that you can earn from those assets is somewhere around one to maybe two and a half percent, even with no debt, it starts to make you realize that unless you like the idea of holding big fat lazy pandas, meaning assets that, you know, you've really got to feed and they don't necessarily give you much income or much juice, you start to kind of see that maybe there's some flaws in the wealth building model. So, you know, my job with um, George and Mildred was really to say, look, guys, you know, you could continue down the path of focusing heavily on debt reduction and the likely implications. And and really, we're, we're talking about modeling here, I suppose. And really, what I'm trying to suggest is that, you know, there's no crystal ball, but you can certainly forecast given the current environment where something is likely to land. And and that's all it is. It's just a flavor of what's possible. And I'm very careful about explaining that to people. Like it is not a crystal ball. This is not set in stone. Obviously things can change and, you know, we're in a very fast pace of change in our world right now. But it'll at least give you a flavor of, okay, well, if you continue down that pathway of reducing debt, where will that take you? And then we can go with, okay, well, what's a more middle of the road kind of, option for for you guys. And and what that involved is looking at the cash reserves that they had, which at that time I think was around three, four hundred thousand. And, you know, taking that, you know, just messing around on the fringes with what they already had in play, but leaving the bulk of their share portfolio completely intact, like not messing with that at all. That was kind of like the middle of the road. If you were to take, you know, a portion of the cash that you have and you take you know, a little bit of your share portfolio, 
what could you achieve over, say, three to five years? And then, you know, the other um, scenario was, let's say you got very confident with this stuff and gradually over time you wanted to take maybe a little more of your portfolio. And when I say a little, I'm talking somewhere around 15 to 30% of your capital and allocate it towards alternative investments. What would that get you? Like, where would that make you land? And so really, just to, to recap, you know, the starting point is always like, okay, well, here's a really conservative strategy. And maybe it's the one that you're already on in terms of pathway. Here's a middle of the road and here's a more aggressive one. And when you have options put in front of you, and this is the missing piece is, as far as I'm concerned for the wealth industry at large is the way that other professionals give advice is they, they're really prescriptive. And I, I definitely think as a society, we want to pull back from that. We want to recalibrate and actually say, look, I don't need you to tell me where to put my money. What I need is for you to help me understand the implications of various decisions so that I, as a, an intelligent human being, can contrast those things for myself. So when we kind of went through some scenarios where George and Mildred landed was in the, I would say, leaning more towards the conservative, but, you know, closer to the middle of the road type strategy. And, you know, the next stage after identifying that, okay, well, that's the broad strokes of the the strategy that sits well with you. Now let's get into the weeds about game plan. And for these guys, it was about, as I said, going through how they were going to access the capital and then creating a cadence around which it was going to be invested or deployed and then really looking incrementally how that was going to impact their passive income. So as I mentioned, they had one commercial property that was maybe giving them let's say, I think it was like less than 20,000. And so that was sort of sitting off to the side. No one was going to mess with that. And that was probably going to be a reasonably good asset over the long term. Then the process was, okay, well, let's actually start to look at alternative investments and what you know, what's in scope, what's not in scope. You know, for those of you who know, the place that I want to play is only those alternative investments that are backed by real property because those of us that have been investors for a long time recognize that assets such as property are much more stable than some of the other markets like, for example, Wall Street and the stock stock market and crypto and all those other things which to some degree I feel, you know, there's a much higher exposure to volatility and sentiment, which I don't like. That's not to say property markets can't claw back and fall, as has been happening in you know many countries on and off over the last few decades. But generally speaking, assets, particularly property in the markets that I focus on, are really dull. They neither set the world on fire because they have runaway capital growth. But certainly in um, economic down markets, they don't fall like a rock either. So, and, you know, most importantly, they still continue to deliver really epic cash flow, which is what makes them so exciting. First of all, let's kind of wrap our heads around what is in scope. So all of those things down one end of the spectrum, like the hedge funds and all that hair raising, you know, venture capital, crypto, all those things that kind of fit into alternative but are down one end in terms of the risk spectrum 
we're just going to disregard those. And let's just focus up this end of the spectrum on assets and investments where you get high predictability around the income stream. They're not volatile. They succeed regardless of what direction the market moves in. Once they were educated on, okay, well, we understand the five buckets of strategies that fit into that category. And just for those of you who aren't familiar, they are, you know, things like lending opportunities where you get to be the bank, private funds, small private funds, syndications, joint ventures, and then there are some turnkey uh, direct property options. So please go back and listen to other podcasts if you want to learn more about them. But the the essence is like you understand the strategies, you identify amongst those strategies, which ones you feel in alignment with. Now, this is the tricky part because frankly, you can look across all five of those buckets and say, well, deals in bucket one and four and two and three and five, they all kind of give you a similar rate of return. And, you know, typically I'm looking for returns of a net return after all my expenses of eight to 15%. That's kind of the sweet spot. And so if they all roughly give you the same level of return, the question then becomes, well, which ones do you pick? So part of the journey is them identifying which strategies feel good to them, like which ones feel comfortable. And as it turns out for George and Mildred, they did actually like some direct property. They also liked private funds and they also liked syndications and actually they also liked joint ventures. So they they kind of went, okay, they're the four buckets that we, we really like. And so then the next stage for them was to really kind of identify the opportunities that not only aligned from a strategy point of view, but met their investing rules or their due diligence rules. So, you know, part of the journey up until this point had been them understanding what the strategies were. And then the next piece, which I think is really, really important, and please go back and watch or listen to the podcasts that I've created about how to do great due diligence, how to set up your investing rules, because too many people kind of skip over that. And I know for sure, if you have clarity about what your investing rules are, and you run every investment that you you undertake, whether it's $1,000 or $100,000 through those investment rules, you are giving yourself a much higher probability of success. And, you know, with investing, if it were a sure thing, everyone would be doing it. So the real game is how do you stack the odds in your favor? Helping these guys develop what are their investing rules. And then what they were able to do is have conversations with people in the trusted advisor network about like how does their investment align with their investment goals and when they start to kind of see that some will be a perfect fit I mean it's like putting on a glove it's like perfect that is completely in alignment with what I'm trying to achieve being my goals the strategies that I like and it also is a fit for my investing rules then that's the trifecta, isn't it? I mean, that's really ultimately what you want as an investor. Again, what I encouraged these guys to do is not to take all of their capital and throw it into the market all in one go. They had about, you know, I'm going to say half a million dollars that they wanted to invest overall. And what I encouraged them to do is start to think in terms of what kind of annual goal do they want to achieve, but act in quarters. 
And the idea with uh, whenever you're investing in a new asset class or a new market, particularly when you don't have to commit huge amounts of capital to, you know, borrow and buy million dollar assets and all that that we're quite familiar with in Australia, is that you need to build confidence. You need to feel momentum before you can start to ramp up. So I encourage people to start with small bites of a few cherries and then just continue to take more bites of more cherries. And eventually you start to get confidence. You start to feel alignment with certain investment opportunities with particular advisors. You start to hear information from them about how to create an edge. And, you know, and I call this lovingly insider trading. And so as you go along, you might start very small. And then, you know, the case with these guys, they were able to start accumulating more quickly in the last last stages of their journey. Just to kind of give you a sense of where these guys are now, unfortunately, COVID has not been kind to the industry that they are part of for various reasons. You know, their, their business is in a situation which is very fragile right now. Potentially, there's a lot of work coming through, but on the flip side, there's supply chain issues. And for those of you who are following the news, you may have heard that there are a lot of large scale builders who are starting to go bust, partly because they have committed to build or construction contracts at a time when the price of materials was a lot less and now they're facing much higher build costs and so they, they can't sustain that. So all of those things have created a cocktail which is great cause for concern. Now, George, uh, in terms of his vision for his business when we when we started working together a couple of years ago was, I don't think I can sell my business. My goal is to create a sort of a financial situation which is going to create a safety net for myself or a plan B. You know, even back then, he probably saw himself as having maybe another three years of wanting to run the business actively. And then if at that point he couldn't sell, he would shut the door and just walk away. Now, unfortunately, from his perspective, that plan has been cut short a year. But we went through a bit of a review of, you know, where are they at and what are the implications of all of this in terms of... uh, you know, the goals that they'd set out to achieve. And, you know, in terms of the passive income that they've generated, they've kind of hit the goal that they had. They had a goal of replacing lifestyle costs with the income that came from alternative investments. And they've done that. The second part of the game that they're now evaluating is they've they've still got that massive share portfolio. Now, there's no question that they could convert that into uh, shares that focus predominantly on paying, you know, reasonably good dividends, and they know that they'll get somewhere around the 4% mark for that. So that becomes cream for them. But they're frankly in a situation where they've had so much fun with accumulating the, you know, the suite of alternative investments that they're now kind of at a crossroads where they're saying, well, yes, we still want to keep some wealth in an exposure to that share market, but maybe the percentage of exposure that they have there is more than they would like now. So they're actually, I guess, from a, an informed platform trying to make decisions to kind of tweak the allocation of assets to shares and property and alternative now. It's a super exciting outcome for them. When we sat down and we added up the income that they were getting from the commercial property, the income they're getting from the alternatives and the income that they may 
develop out of shares. They realized they could actually breathe out, you know, in spite of the fact that the timeline to do all of this may be cut short, maybe not, like we just we're in a bit of a, a knife's edge right now, but they recognize that they're actually going to be okay. The reason I decided that this would be a great case study to share with people today is I think there's a significant amount of financial pain and economic pain that is yet to come into our market. I honestly, hand on heart, I cannot believe that something as significant as, you know, COVID could kind of rip the guts out of many businesses for the last two years and for there not to be ripple effects. Uh, I certainly am not saying this to be a scaremonger. In fact, quite the opposite. What I'm saying is if you are relying on one source of income, there is no question that no matter how lucrative that is, you are exposed to a level of vulnerability around that reliance. The act of investing The idea of creating a parallel stream of income is one of creating a safety net and creating a plan B. doesn't mean you'll necessarily need it. And for many business owners who are worth significantly more than George and Mildred, but don't have that ability to create that or don't have the awareness of the importance of plan B, they're the ones that come undone. So look, guys, I, I know I've, I've sort of meandered into a whole lot of different threads today, but the really big takeaway that, you know, I hope that you have from this is that you do not need to be a multi-billionaire to create an extraordinary investing result in a very short space of time. You need to be aware of what your choices are. You need to be aware of how to access better quality of investment deals And you need to be, you know, someone who actually really wants it. You have to be hungry for it. If you are someone who thinks of investing as an irritation or something like watching paint dry, then, you know, alternative investments are certainly a contrast to that. But what I would say is that the desire and the understanding that that safety net is really important, whether it's to protect against you know, diabolical economic volatility or uncertainty, or whether you simply just want to be that person who creates uh, an early retirement or has that choice, that freedom of choice to choose whether or not you work, then, um, you know, you really, really need to go back and listen to some past podcasts to understand why, in my world, alternative investments are changing the landscape of investing particularly in my country, but all over the world. So anyway, guys, I hope you found this useful. I look forward to catching up with you next time. If you have any questions, please reach out to me. I'm on all socials or you can email me, selena at incosiwealth.com. Take care. You've been listening to the Alternative Investing Podcast. If you're feeling frustrated that despite doing everything right in the property investing playbook and you're no closer to financial freedom, then head on over to incosiwealth.com to learn more about how you can use alternative investments to catapult your investing income and blend strategies to shave decades off your timeline to financial freedom. See you on the next episode.